Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist and the author of numerous books, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, The Trauma of Everyday Life, and my favorite, Advice Not Given, which I just read and highly recommend. Although Dr. Epstein is a Western-trained psychiatrist, he was immersed in Buddhist thought and practice years before his psychiatry training. Today, Dr. Epstein is teaching us about the intersection of Buddhism and psychotherapy and how he applies the Buddhist teachings to his practice. We talk about faith, about death, about awareness, and of course, we talk about therapy. Dr. Epstein gives us a refresher course on mindfulness. He says that we should treat our wandering mind like a child who doesn't know any better, instead of criticizing ourselves for not being perfect at the practice. We also talk about anger, guilt, and motivation. Anger alone is ineffective, he says, but it can be transformed into wisdom and skillful action. And Dr. Epstein explains why simply absolving ourselves from guilt is not necessarily the highest form of motivation. Dr. Epstein also helps people apply the Buddhist principles to their lives today. He believes that even in isolation, we're all connected as one, and that at the root of anything is love, or the absence of love. The real meditation is to catch the mind when it wanders, when you notice that it's wandered, and bring it back. So, And to treat, to treat the wandering mind the way you would a young child who doesn't know any better. So you grab it by the hand bring it back, but you don't start beating the child up because it, uh, you know, unless it ran into the street and was about to get run over, you know. Let's get to my chat with Dr. Mark Epstein. Thanks for, for giving us the time. I feel like collectively we all need both therapy and Buddhism right now. You're the perfect 
the perfect person to take us through this time. I'm just going to decide that now. Well, that, that's very nice that you could decide it at the beginning. So, we'll see. I've heard, I've heard only amazing things about you. And I just read Advice Not Given and was like, wow, this is exactly what I needed to read right now. So thank you for that. And I think the reason, and you can, you can correct me here, is that I feel like we are between the pandemic and George Floyd and yeah. the entire turning out of our system and this, this opportunity to go and sit with it. We are watching sort of so many things happen simultaneously, right? We're, we're all reacting from our sort of wounds and, tr- and triggers and trying desperately to make ourselves feel better as quickly as possible. And your book at least sort of calls us to this idea that there's no bypass, right? Like we have to sit, we have to sit with it and explore it and understand it. We can't just reflexively be like, I need to feel better right now. I need this to go away right now. The impulse is to, uh, to do the thing you're saying that we can't do, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, just to try to make it go away, just to try to feel better. This time period, the past, you know, more than 100 days, three months and whatever, has really for a lot of people been like a long retreat, like a long Buddhist meditation retreat for those who, you know, are fortunate enough not not just to be having to, you know, scramble to get to work and, and so on. But for most of the people who are locked at home, I think in a lot of ways, it's really been like a retreat where finally you can't avoid all those things, both within your own psyche and also in the culture that you've been either consciously or unconsciously trying not to look at. I was supposed to go on a retreat right in the beginning of March, and I had to cancel it because of the pandemic just beginning. And then I found, oh, it's not just me going on retreat. It's really the whole world is on retreat now. So it's been interesting to, to watch that happen. I have never done like a Vipassana or long silent retreat, but when I've asked people about the experience and I know that you have done them for your entire adult life, they're Mm -hmm. like, it's, there's sort of this uh, initial urge, right? Or or that it's so hard and so overwhelming until you sort of drop in. Is that true? Well, it's different. It's every retreat is different and, and it's different for every person. But I think this, this uh, experience that we're all having now of being closed up into our own little worlds is about as close as you could get to what a retreat is like, where you really have to structure everything for yourself and your own mind is, the, uh, is basically the entertainment. I mean, uh, <laughs> now we have Netflix and podcasts and so on, but the joke that I always make to my wife when I come back from the retreats you know, they're structured so that they're silent and there's no eye contact and uh, you're meant to be mindful, meaning uh, attentive to your own experience, whatever you're doing. But my, my joke is that there's no time to meditate on these retreats because by the time you wake up and go to breakfast and take a walk and make a cup of coffee and do your exercises and take a shower and, and whatnot, you know, like half the day is gone. So if you can, if you can get in an hour or two of meditation in the whole day, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a win, you know? Yeah, I mean, I love this, this 
there's a sentence in your book that I love that I wrote down, which is so true too of this time, right? Which is just defined by uncertainty that the past and future preoccupy us because we are trying to control things while being in the present necessitates openness to the unexpected. Yeah. And I would imagine you encounter this with everyone, all of your clients and with everyone you encounter or touch in the world. It's so human. Like, do we all feel that driving desire? Is it the perfectionists? Is it the people who need to feel unassailable? Or is it just very human to feel like we need to control our environment, like dominate our environment? No, I think it's it's very human that we want as much control as possible over our environment. Otherwise, we're at the mercy of, you know, nature and each other and our own minds, you know. So that that need for control, it's not I don't think it's just perfectionism. It can become that. But that that's what the ego is all about, you know, trying to figure stuff out so that we're as safe as possible. But the Buddhist psychology, the the Buddha's contribution was to say, yes, of course, we all want that, but it's not completely possible. You know, it's not thoroughly possible. There's always old age that you can't control. There's always illness, like we know now, that you can't control. There's always death that happens, even though we don't want it. There's always separation from those we love. And there's always being, you know, crammed in with people that we don't love. There's always elements in life that we can't control and that we can't anticipate. So even though we're trying to figure everything out and there's so much that we have figured out, there's always going to be aspects to life that are just out of our control. And it's for that reason that the Buddha taught meditation and put that big emphasis on openness to the present. Because yeah. the, the, the thinking mind is always racing between, uh, you know, backwards and forwards. It's always going to the past and to the future. And it's very hard to rest the thinking mind in the present. Because the present is always slipping away from us anyway. You know, the present is actually hard to find. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, just in, you know, we're recording this. It's a few weeks into the protests at this point, And there's this idea, too, of rush to action, right? Not just words, silence is complicity, now put action behind it. And it feels sort of really frantic to me and that we're all being very reflexive and self-protective. And, you know, for me personally, I'm like, if I get shamed or feel like I'm doing something wrong, I'm just like, what do I need to do? Like, how can I lash myself? How can I, you know, how, what do I need to do to make this feeling go away? And it's interesting on the topic of silence and social media and where we are in the context of the stories that you tell, I feel like there were two of them in the book two about hermits because, and, and sort of the teachings that they got, which is that they need to live, right? Like we yeah. were also not living in a world where it's acceptable now to not engage. Well, I think that this is a very special time though, where the group impetus to action you know, has taken hold really because of an extraordinary empathy that people have felt, you know, in each of their isolations, you know, in everybody's quarantine, in their social distance, in their own meditations. Yet when confronted with the uh, egregious murder, people spontaneously and empathically rose up. So, so that is maybe a once-in-a-lifetime, twice-in-a-lifetime kind of event that moves history. 
And yeah. uh, uh, that, that's a wonderful thing, especially when it's coming out of a heartfelt, you know, empathic place and across the board, you know, black, white, male, female, Hispanic, Latino, everything, brown, every, everybody feeling that kind of empathic response. And so that, that speaks to the porousness of people's minds, you know, even in our isolation, we're not really so isolated. There really is an interdependence. There really is a way that we're all connected and can sometimes act as one. So that's yeah. a very special thing. Yeah. No, I agree. And and not only can we act as one, it, we're required to act as one. I feel like there's been this this uh, this opening up to this idea of how interconnected we are, how reliant on each other we are, how, you know, my health impacts your health, my impact my actions impact your actions, and there is no more holding yourself apart, right? Like everyone's being called out in all ways to show up, to speak up, to put action and to continue to, to, to really make it a movement and see it all the way through to, to realized systemic change. But it's just, it's interesting in the context of like of Buddhism and mindfulness and this need to sort of go inside and hold yourself apart. And where's the healthy balance? Is it just like the, the ability to go in and out and engage and retreat and engage and retreat? The interesting thing to me, Elise, about this time is that although we're all being called to come out of ourselves, the impulse to come out is is coming from the inside. You, you know, so it really is an empathic thing that is calling on everybody. So I think that pull to action, oftentimes I, I'm mistrustful of those kinds of immediate rushes to action, you know. But I think when it when it's so clearly coming from a caring place. When, when the culture is calling out for a shift like this, that we just have to trust it. And the tendency, the need to come back inside, I think it will be obvious when the right time is to come back inside. Yeah. Uh, and, and, that, and that return to the inside will continue to replenish the action on the outside. You know, that balance is the one that's always necessary. Totally. And, you know, refilling the tank to keep going. This is clearly yeah. something that needs to be, it's going to take ongoing effort. And continuing and to come from the caring place, you know, it's so, it's so easy to get carried away. And once there's a lot of anger that's motivating people, it's easy for the anger to, you know, what they, what the Buddhists say about anger is that anger is like a forest fire that burns up its own support. So, but it's also like a, a um, anger transformed is, is wisdom and skillful action. So finding, finding how not to be ruined by your own anger, but learning how to use it. It's a, another aspect of how they say the, the mind is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of what meditation and even therapy can be about is like learning how to... Uh, how to discipline your own mind so that it becomes your servant. Yeah, no, I, that's such a beautiful, I've never heard that about, I'd, I worked with this, the the uh, monk in the Bon tradition, and oh. he he talks about the five stages of anger and how, you know, he, and that it takes hundreds of years to grow a forest, but a fire can burn it down into it two hours, but right. that it starts with impatience, then irritation, then tantrum, then anger, then rage. 
So what happened, you know, clearly there is a lot of under, like a lot of rage, a lot of anger that's very understandable and justified, but can that transmute into something that's, it, it's maybe it is, maybe it's happening in real time and we're watching it. Can. it. Of course yeah. it can. It, it can. If it's held properly, if it's held properly, even rage can transmute into compassion and love and, and empathy. That's the great teaching, you know, and I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. That's most of what I do. And uh, uh, I've been very inspired by a, a child psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott, who mm. uh, worked in England in the 40s and 50s. And uh, he's the one who originated the phrase, the, the good enough mother, which we would now say is the, the good enough parent. But uh, his definition of the good enough mother was uh, a mother who was not afraid of either her baby's rage, her infant's rage, or her own. And that it, it's uh, the parents who are too sentimental or trying to you know, smooth it over too quickly without making room for that kind of rage don't teach their children how to handle their own emotions later in life. But the mm. ones who are, who are able to make room for the anger without, without backing away or without uh, sort of intrusively moving in too quickly to try to make it go away, the children who are handled that way eventually learn to relate to their mothers as separate persons, you know, who need care and concern even from the child. And that's said to be the development of empathy. So that, that idea of holding in the larger sense of the word, holding difficult emotions, that, that's a lot of the way I think of psychotherapy also, that we're creating an environment in which we can look at everything even the most difficult feelings can find their way into consciousness and their, their roots can be examined. And the roots are always love or the absence of love. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. So in our in this moment in time when when we're also, I think, being reflexive, trying to make it go away, like who, where can I donate? Where can I what do I do to absolve myself of this this guilt, anxiety, you know, the the feelings right it's it's in that moment that we have to be containers for ourselves and each other right yeah well the 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 urge to absolve oneself is is a kind of low level thing where where we're still trying to get away from our own complicity you know we're still trying to get away from the way that we really are all responsible Mm -hmm. for this and for making it better so the finding places to give money or to give help nothing wrong with that you know, try, trying to do, finding any way to do something is, is wonderful. But look at, be able to look at the underlying motivation. That's, you know, in my book that you talked about, that, that you liked, Advice Not Given, 
that's based on the Buddha's Eightfold Path, and uh, which is like the eight limbs of, that lead you to enlightenment. And one, one of them is, is right motivation, which means that you're willing to examine your motivation so if your motivation is to try to, you know, absolve yourself of, of guilt that you're not sure you should have anyway in the first place, but maybe you do, then that isn't necessarily the highest motivation, you know? Yeah. Um, you, but uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't give the money. Right, right. But it's, it's like the, the unpacking has to go on. This isn't sort of a, like, gestural, and I think that that's been clear sort of within social media and the culture, like, this can't just be, like a rubber stamp box ticking exercise. This will require a deep. It's an opportunity for that. It really is an opportunity for that. That's the going internal part that you were asking about before. You know, there really is time while we're alone with ourselves to look inside our own minds and inside our own hearts and see, you know, what, what, what our motivation actually is and how much guilt and shame and, and whatnot is worth having and, and how much is being laid on by other people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's a question. That's a really important question too, is understanding our, our own participation. And then ideally that there's an acknowledgement or a release of that attachment. And then we shift into fixing it. Like how in the, in, in, in stages of reconciliation, how long is it important to sort of be, how long do we need to stay in sort of this, like, let's take our medicine and, and do this deep exploration or is it, and until we move into action or is it, I, I don't know, maybe there's no answer to that, but well, like, when do you know it, it's resolved in yourself? Your, your, your question makes me think about grief because, because the question is sort of similar to what people ask about grief. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, people think they're supposed to go through the four stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's template about grief, you know. But my experience as a therapist working with, with people is that grief, grief is a strange creature, you know. Grief, you don't know what it is until you're going through it, and it has its own life. And it doesn't go away, it just changes form. You know, it rolls over and over and you think you're over it and then, but then it comes around again in a different way. And I think this idea that you're asking about, about resolving, you know, when does reconciliation take place? I'm not sure. I think it's going to be an ever evolving process. Mm-hmm. I mean, thank goodness we're, we're, it's, it's begun. Hopefully it's really begun. You know, we fought this before and it, and it goes away, but it's rolling around again and pulling a lot of people into it. So may it go on forever, you know? That, that would be the best thing, that, yeah. uh, that our, our, our country, the world, w- would finally deal with all of the incredible prejudices, all of the exploitation that has uh, brought us to this, to this place. It's going to take a long time to unpack all of that. Yeah. I've, I've, this is certainly the first experience of this in my own lifetime, but it does feel like a perfectly primed spiritual moment for so many people of the, and, and it's all, they're all connected. Everything's connected, obviously within this, the, the pandemic and then, and which, which exposed and made transparent 
which was already a deeply inequitable system. And, and again, like that, the, the connection, the responsibility that we all have for each other's health and well-being. And, and now this, again, and then on the, the backdrop of it, of course, is sort of what's happening on our, on our planet, right? Which is so demanding of our attention. And it all feels, whatever we rebuild, you know, what, what we had was not sustainable, so whatever we build, that's why I love, you know, the the new or the Green New Deal, because it's built on equity. That's this, the core of this of the of the bill, you know, in terms of engineering our society to combat climate change. It feels like a whole system overhaul. But this it feels like that's what's required. It's not there's no normal. There's no the normal was not working on any level. Well, I think I think what's required, or or what's what's possible in this time when we're all turned back on ourselves in this you know retreat atmosphere that that we're in, what what's possible is is that we have the opportunity, we have the chance to look at the shadowy places both in ourselves and in our culture and in the world that ordinarily, like we were talking about at the beginning, that ordinarily it's so much easier just to turn away from. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the, the Buddha, when he gave his first teaching after his enlightenment, his first teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is like the core of Buddhist psychology, the first truth is that life has this element of unsatisfactoriness in it, which usually it's talked about as suffering, which is not, not a great translation of the word. The word the Buddha used was dukkha. And uh, he said, uh, you know, life is full of dukkha, or he actually just said the one word, which is dukkha. But dukkha, if you take the word apart, means difficult to face, hard to face. Ka, the suffix ka means face. And dukkha means like difficult or, you know, hard to face. Sukha is like sweet to face. So the, the Buddha is saying that there's a tendency in all of us you know, because of our desire to have things the way we want it, to uh, turn away from the things that are difficult to face, but that that does not help anybody or anything, that the way through, you, you know, the only way through is to learn how to face that which is difficult. And I think that's all this stuff that you're bringing up, the planet and the culture and each mm-hmm. other, you know, those are all the things that are that we would rather not have to look at and that the culture has been speeding right through and not yeah. paying attention to so that the stock market can go up and so that we can live our comfortable lives and even have our spiritual journeys, you know, which we imagine are taking us to a sublime place where we don't have to worry about anything. But that's not consistent with really what the, certainly what the Buddha taught. And was he, when he was talking about that too, was he talking about this idea of facing what's difficult sort of out there or that as an inner act? Because I well, think too, well, yeah. He's, he's not making a differentiation between inner and outer. In, you know, ultimately inner and outer are, that's a false, a false dichotomy. We're, we're, we're not separate from the world, each of us. We think we are. We think we're each isolated beings, you know, alone in here in some kind of little homunculus inside our brains, you know, and it's, it's us against the world. And uh, we just have to make it to, to death with our retirement account intact, you know. <laughs> but really, we are completely one with the world. We, our sense organs are constantly you know, uh, giving and receiving. Our breath is what's linking us to the world. We are not 
separate beings. You know, we are all in this really, we're all made of the same stuff. What happens over here matters over there, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So I take it you're not a a total materialist. Like you don't think, you don't think we're just creating consciousness out of our brains that there's something I can think think about it any which way you know I mean I went to Harvard Medical School I can think about it as a scientific materialist but deep in my deep in my faith faith faith-based belief I would love to believe that we are uh, that consciousness is something mysterious that certainly we don't understand yet. The, the scientific materialists don't understand consciousness yet. So there's still room to imagine that we have souls, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it is the, and, and it puts this into an even more amazing context if we can all sort of create, back up enough to imagine that, that there is a bigger, bigger show happening here that we're participating in and and learning and evolving against and that we're not just here to sort of fight for our piece of turf and protect our own sense of safety and security and die. But that, no, we're here, we're here to fight with the forces of light for, uh, for love and understanding and harmony. And compassion and connection. And, you know, that seeing from the heart I love too, like the the way that you talk about, you know, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but how mindfulness, like you talk about it as sort of this, we've turned it into this admonishing thing that you can do right and that we suck at it. And, and it's really, we're missing the whole point of what the experience is supposed to be. And can you sort of explain a little bit about like where, where you land on that? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, the tendency to be self-critical and to use whatever one's experience is to be down on oneself and to feel like like you're a failure no matter what you do is just as easily attachable to meditation to mindfulness as it is <laughs> to anything else so mindfulness meditation is, is like it's the simplest thing in the world you know it's almost nothing like sit pay attention when you're breathing, notice that you're breathing, you know, when you're hearing, notice that you're hearing, when you're chewing, notice that you're chewing, when you're walking, notice that you're walking. I mean, there's really nothing to it, but put your attention in the moment on whatever you're doing. And if it were easy to do, you, you know, that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have turned into a 2,500 year old religion, you know, that everyone was uh, struggling with. It's really hard to do almost nothing. So all of our ego-based striving, you know, like wanting to get it right and wanting to be a success and not wanting to be a failure, every time the mind wanders out of the present moment, you you know, the, the real meditation is to catch the mind when it wanders, when you notice that it's wandered and bring it back. So, and to treat, to treat the wandering mind the way you would a young child who doesn't know any better. So you grab it by the hand, bring it back, but you don't start beating the child up because it, uh, you know, unless it ran into the street and was about to get run over, you know. So that sort of caring, kind, patient willingness to work with an unruly mind, which we all have, in order to do it successfully, you have to cultivate all those qualities that are not necessarily so well developed in people. The, the well-developed qualities are, oh, I, you know, I can't even do this. And oh, what a, what a failure. And oh, I have ADD. And 
oh, you know, but those are just excuses. So it's yeah. a real opportunity to see all of those tendencies in oneself, but not to indulge them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really what the meditation is good for. It's to, to relieve you of the pressure of all of those tendencies that are usually driving you unawares. Now you yeah. become very aware of them. And to create space, this, it was in one of the final pages of your book, but it was, it really made, I related to it so deeply, I almost cried. You wrote, what is left when we are no longer identified with the personality we know? This is something the Zen tradition, indeed all Buddhist traditions, is constantly seeking to convey. For me, on this retreat, the revelation was that I did not have to be the effortful person I thought I was. And when I wasn't this person, I did not disappear. Something filled me. I was filled by something. An unconscious potential became conscious. That was beautiful. Oh, I'm glad you like that. It's, try, it's hard to put words on those meditative retreat experiences, you know, that they're, they're, they can be so subtle and yet so important. I tried to talk to my father. You know, my, my father was a professor of medicine, first at Yale and then at Harvard, definitely a scientific materialist, and uh, <laughs> who was very happy that I went to medical school, but never wanted to talk about anything spiritual. It was like, you know, enough that I was into it, but he didn't really want to know. But he, at the end of his life, he got a brain tumor, the same, you know, uh, John McCain and uh, Edward Kennedy brain tumor, glioblastoma. And he got it on the non-dominant side, the silent side of his brain. So cognitively, with his intelligence, he knew he wasn't impaired, but he knew he had this tumor that was going to kill him. And I went through a real dilemma, which is sort of the origin of the title of the book, Advice Not Given because I'd been keeping my Buddhist leanings private and not, you know, he wasn't interested, so I wasn't going to lay it on him. But I decided uh, maybe if, if I've learned anything from, uh, from this world about what happens when you die, if we don't just fully die, maybe I should try to talk to my father about it. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I called him up uh, from my office and had one last conversation where I very tentatively said, you know, I don't know if you want to hear any of this, but I love to tell you if you're open at all, you know, this is what the Buddhists say about what death is like. Uh, and he was very nice, you know, <laughs> sure, sure, you know, go right ahead. And I said, you, you, I tried to find language that wasn't overtly spiritual. And I said, you, you know how there's a feeling deep inside you where you know you're always you, no matter what age you've been, like who you are from the inside when you're 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 is pretty much the same. But if you try to find what that feeling is, it's kind of it, it's kind of transparent. It's almost invisible, and yet you know it's there. I said the Buddhists say if you can learn to relax your mind back into that almost transparent feeling of who you've always been, that you can kind of ride that feeling out while the body falls away. That was the best I could do, oh. and he and he was like, um, "Okay, darling, I'll try." <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. You know, you brought up faith too, which I think is so, which means so much to so many people. But for me, it's always been, and I feel like we're all being called to find our faith in something, right? And it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be grounded in in the spiritual realm, but we're being asked to trust, to find our faith, to put down our armor to step into something that's obviously uncertain and try something else. And 
How do you, with your, with yourself, with your clients, with the way that you contact the world, like how can, how do you cultivate faith? Is it through those experiences? Like the experience that you have, that you have at, at meditation retreats, like those moments of aha? Yeah. Well, that has really helped the uh, going on those retreats, especially when I was young and really didn't hardly knew myself at all, you know? But, yeah. but there I was sitting for weeks on end, watching my breath and my mind and seeing what happened. And occasionally I would be like really be filled by just this overwhelming love that I had no idea where it was coming from. But uh, clearly I was capable of it. And I had no idea that I was capable of such a clear and intense feeling, you know. So that, that definitely gave me some degree of faith, in, just that we're all, we all have that within us somewhere. I remember I had a teacher when, when in my 20s named, named Ramdas. You might be familiar mm, with him. Of course. He was a, a Richard Alpert. He was a, yeah. you know, a Harvard psychology Another professor. Another Harvard and, person. Yeah, he was there way before <laughs> me. But I, I ran into him when I was in my early 20s. And he was a teacher for a mentor, sort of. And then uh, after I went to medical school, about 20 years after I first knew him, I went and visited him. And he was living in Tiburon in California. And he'd had a stroke already. And he was, I went to, I had a, you know, afternoon with him. I hadn't seen him in in decades. And he was sort of teasing me, which was his way. And he said, oh, are you, uh, you're you're a Buddhist psychiatrist now, eh? And I I was like, yeah, I guess. Uh, And he said, well, do you, do you see them, meaning my patients, do you see them as already free? And it was such a weird question that it took me, you know, a beat or two to figure out what he was asking me. But I think he went right to the core of something, you know, about about faith that maybe were that were coming out of those early retreat experiences. But that yes, the answer was I do see these people who are coming, who are suffering in all kinds of ways, and you know, tied up in various kinds of knots. But I know in, somewhere in me that they're already free, and so then I can just if there's anything I can do delicately to try to help untie some of that stuff that's stopping them from knowing it themselves, then I know that that's what my work is as a therapist. Mm, I love that. I also love the title of your book. It First, it made me laugh. And then I just I came to really appreciate it in the context of like you, you write much of the time when I do offer advice, it is overtly welcome, but covertly rejected. Because as I think any of us in therapy, it's like, I'm like, just tell me what to do, you know, but the reality is, you have to get there on your own, right? No, the reality is, I I tell I give lots of advice, it turns (laughs) out. But but, because I've realized that if people don't want to take it, they're not going to take it. So that like liberated me. So uh, I decided I wasn't going to be the therapist who just sat there silently and didn't say what I thought. But but I was careful not to lay a spiritual Buddhist mindfulness thing on on people who didn't didn't come to me for that. I didn't I didn't want I didn't want to turn what was so precious to me, you know, in the spiritual realm. I didn't want to turn that into, you know, something that was being forced down uh, somebody's throat and therefore rejected. I would rather that to wait and let them come to it themselves if they yeah. if they ever were going to. Yeah. Though I do I love the story that you tell sort of not in depth, but you talk about a client who was talking about his drinking and drugging and and that after 
he was like, I, I am so appreciative of the fact that you only suggested I go to AA once because I needed to get there to find, on my to own. find it by himself, yeah. 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 Which I think is so beautiful. Because therapy, to me, the, or this is how I relate to my therapist, is that like he he holds the mirror and doesn't make me look, it's not forceful, but that like to, to, be, to be held by someone in that way is so powerful even as just a way of reflecting back his experience of me, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think to have, to have a trusting relationship uh, in the therapy, which goes two ways, you know, it's not just the patient to the therapist, but that it really is a dynamic relationship, you know, where there's a lot of trust so that one can gradually reveal oneself to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that seems very special to me. Uh, especially in our culture, you know, that that our culture could somehow make room for this kind of relationship where two people get together. It used to be they got together in a room together. Now it's they get together over the computer, but whatever, where two people get together with no agenda other than to try to see what's happening in the moment, you know, within them and and between them. You, you know, that's really a remarkable thing and very healing because whatever whatever needs to come to the surface does, yeah. um, you know, under the spell of the, the, uh, the mutual trust. It's, and it can take years. It can, t- can take a long time for people to be willing to face, what, you know, stuff that they've spent their whole lives trying not to look at. But, but eventually everything, everything comes out. I'm jealous of your profession. I, I think it would be so fascinating and and enriching and maybe tedious I don't know I'm sure you're doing I, something similar you're doing <laughs> something similar look at what you're doing but do you and it feels like I mean my experiences with therapy when I was young in New York in my 20s were that therapy was not for me I was it was like deeply un, un, uneventful and un, I just did not enjoy it at all but it seems like it's evolved dramatically has it changed or is it just I've found better therapists? I doubt it's changed very much, Elise, really. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I think there are tons of people who come to therapy who don't really want to be there and then are basically just uh, just resisting it. And there are tons of therapists who, you know, maybe can't be there the way a given patient needs them to be. Yeah. Um, so where just where the fit isn't good. So I, I always think you have to feel like, like you could be friends with this person or at least trust them, if you, even if you didn't want to be friends with them, you know, and to keep moving on if it doesn't feel right. Yeah. But, no. but I do think there's been a, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. I do think there's been a gradual shift over maybe the past 20 years or so where therapists are more comfortable being themselves in the, in the office or in the relationship, that there has been a movement away from the therapist as the knowing, the all-knowing analyst who gives an interpretation that you know shakes your world, to a uh, to the therapist as a, almost like a spiritual friend, although that's pushing it uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of people. But to the the therapist as a real person who is trying to do his or her best to uh, use the relationship in a productive way to help you move forward in your life however you conceive of that 
Yeah, I mean, it seems so, it's like uh, the pearl and this, you know, that there's this like mutual, not chafing, but that there's this mutual growth that ideally would happen. I mean, I always have this question, which obviously I'm like, do you like me? Like, I just, everyone wants to know, right? <laughs> like, does their therapist? You just ask and then they say yes, and then you don't believe them. <laughs> but I'm like, do you enjoy our of sessions? Of course they or like you. <laughs> Do you I would kick... have gotten rid of you a long time ago. That was my it. question. Do you fire, like, do you find that there are people in therapy that you're like, this isn't, this isn't moving? People it's not don't growing? Come. They stop coming. They don't want to pay money to come and be, and, and not like the experience. People stop yeah. coming if it's not good. I rarely have to, so, you know, I, I'm not that good at firing anybody, but I rarely have to nudge someone to tell me that they that they don't feel like this is working out so well. Usually, usually they'll tell me without me nudging them. <laughs> usually, it's pretty. You know, you feel it. You're alone there for an hour. With you know, if it if it's uh, if it's just going to be awkward and defensive, then sometimes you know you have to wait because the resistance. The resistance is the therapy, you know, that that's a that's a sort of a known thing. Yeah. Um, so, so sometimes you have to make room for that. But that can be talked about, too. That's interesting, because I would imagine that the people who are sort of forced into therapy or they're against their will, that it must require a certain softening. And is there always is there a pattern recognition at this point? I think there are some therapists who are very good at working with people who are forced into therapy and so on, who are who are able to to do, you know, the combination of supportive and and confrontative work that's required to, you know, get someone to believe that this uh, stupid process is actually worth something. <laughs> oh. oh, it's been it's been. I think it's. I wouldn't be able to survive. It's something I would not be able to forego, even when I don't feel like I'm working on anything's significant. It's it's just just to have that space feels so nourishing. So looking ahead and thinking about where we're at, do you feel I know we're almost out of time, but do you feel optimistic? Like do you what how do you feel? Do I feel optimistic of that we're going to learn something from uh, something important from all of this time? Yeah, or and do um, something about it. If history is any guide, I would say no. I, I would say there's probably in, inside of me a lot of false optimism that will end up being disappointed. That doesn't mean that I'm not like cheering and hoping and trying to do whatever I can from within myself to make this time really pivotal for the culture. So I hope so. But I would say, realistically speaking, I don't know. Mm. And that's, I guess, where we all have to sit, right? It's just in that uncertainty. Well, let's let's hope with the uh, let's hope that people vote. Let's let's just like get down to the basics, you know. Exactly. I think if people vote, if people vote, that that's the first step. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Mark Epstein. For more about him and his work, head to markepsteinmd.com. And don't forget to get advice not given. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.